Grace and peace to you friends. Welcome to The Oak Tree Journeys. My name is Mandy Oaks and this is the Encyclopedia Challenge. What is the Encyclopedia Challenge you may ask? Well that's a great question. You may also wonder if you need to read the Encyclopedia in order to listen to this podcast. And the answer is no. Um, that is my job. I read the Encyclopedia to you. In fact we are reading from two different encyclopedias. The main encyclopedia we are reading from is the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909, and then the second one is the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And we are on Season 1, Episode 39, and uh, today is November 14th, so welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited. We do have all 50 words uh, today, even though uh, we are... Uh, going to go over Alaska. Uh, so usually, uh, I, well, not usually, but I decided a few episodes ago that uh, whenever we go through a state that I will tone it down to less than 50 words, possibly 30. Um, but Alaska in the 1909 Encyclopedia and Dictionary uh, is not very long uh, because it is <laughs> from 1909. So so I decided to go ahead and do the full 50 words, so I'm excited about that. And um, not to forget our quote of the month. Uh, remember, we do have a quote of the month, and uh, this month, because Thanksgiving is in this month, our quote does have to do with Thanksgiving. It is, best of all, is it to preserve everything in a pure, still heart, and let there be for every pulse a Thanksgiving, and for every breath, a song, and that's by Gesner. And if you remember last week, uh, my nephew helped us, helped me with the quote of the month and read a few of the entries, and he did a great job, so I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Vincent. Uh, he is not with me today. In fact, uh, you didn't hear her, but my niece was also with us, and uh, she just kind of wanted to listen in. Uh, if you remember last week, I said, oh, there was a noise, <laughs> and I had to pause. Uh, it was her lightly tapping on the door, uh, gently rapping, <laughs> knocking on the door. Um, something scared her. They did spend the night with me, and you know, noises in the new house, a new environment, and all of that. And she got a little scared there, and and I uh, wanted to, to stick with me, so... So that's what she did, and uh, it was really cool. She sat there and listened and um, saw what it was like. So maybe someday she'll she'll come and help, um, and maybe my nephew will come back to read some more entries because uh, he did a great job, and maybe sometime we'll get her to, to read a few too. She's, she gets a little wary about, about things like this. But, um, but yeah, thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you for... Uh, my listeners in Australia and all over the U.S., I appreciate you. In fact, um, someone from the Wana tribe bade me adieu. So, Emily, if you are a fan and you are listening, hi! <laughs> and thank you for that. That was pretty cool. And thank you to all of the Wana tribe listeners out there. I appreciate you guys. Um, but uh, let's get to... Some I do have some sad news mixed in with some really good news, but we'll we'll get into all of that uh, throughout. 
Um, last week we ended with the Flemish scholar Alain de Lille or Lily. Um, today we are going to begin with a French novelist um, from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And um, his name is Alan Furnia, or Nie. And his pen name was Henry Alan Fournier. He was a French novelist born Chapelle de Angelion, or Angelon, October 3rd, 1886. He died in Bois Saint Remy, September 22nd, 1914. His best-known work was Le Grand Milnes, published in 1913, inspired by his experiences as a student at the Lycée Lacnel, and based to some extent on the life of John Keats. An English translation entitled The Wanderer in 1928 contained an introduction by Havelock Ellis. Part of an unfinished novel dealing with Par Parisian life was in his posthumous Miracles in 1924. And uh, I'm sorry, I forgot to uh, tell you what the first five words are, or the first five entries. So we just read Alan Fournia, Nie, um, but we also have Alais, Aluquela, Alamant, comma, Lucas, Alamant Creek, comma, NC, comma, Battle of, and, um, we are going to be in the Encyclopedia Americana for three of these entries and in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 for two of these entries. In fact, the second entry, um, we do go back to the 1909, and that is, I think I called it Alais. It's actually Alais, so Alais which is a town of the Department of Gard, France, in a fertile plain on the right bank of the Garden at the base of the Savannah Mountains, 23 miles northwest from the Nimes, with which it is connected by a railway. It embraced the Protestant cause in the religious wars of France, and Louis XIII, in person, accompanied by the Cardinal de Richelieu, besieged it, and having taken it in... 1629 demolished its walls. Three years later, the Baron of Valais, having taken part in the rebellion of Montmorency, the castle was destroyed. Protest Protestantism still prevails. Valais is a flourishing town, chiefly by reason of the mineral wealth of the surrounding district, which produces coal, iron, lead, zinc, and magnet. Manganese. That's a hard word to say for some reason. The coal and iron mines are of chief importance. There are large iron foundries in the town and neighborhood. There are also manufacturers of ribbons, stockings, gloves, vitriol, and earthenware. Alay is an Episcopal seat, population about 22,000. So that's 22,000 in the early 1900s. Okay, and... We are going to stay in the 1909 Encyclopedia and Dictionary uh, for our third entry, which is Alejuela. I know I said that wrong the first time. My apologies. Uh, but that is the city of the state of Costa Rica, Central America, 23 miles west-northwest from Cartago and, on a, and a little on the west side of the watershed between the Atlantic and the Pacific. 
It contains many good houses and has extensive suburbs of detached houses embowered among trees and flowering shrubs. The culture of the sugarcane is the chief industry in this region, population including suburbs, 12,575. Okay, and let's go back to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 for our fourth entry. And our fourth entry is Alamon, comma, Lucas, or Lucas Alamon. He was a Mexican statesman and historian born... Guanajuato, October 18, 1792, died June 2, 1853. In 1814, he went to Europe, where he spent eight years as a deputy from Guanajuato to the Spanish court, Cortez in 1819, he interceded on behalf of the rebellious Mexicans. Returning to Mexico in 1822, he held several public offices under Anastasio Bustamante and Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, especially as Minister of Foreign Relations, a capacity in which he twice served. The liberal ideas with which he had come into contact in Europe made him a reactionary in politics and religion, and he was responsible for much of the bad relations between Mexico and the United States during his political career. Alamán organized the government archives and founded the National Museum, his historical works of scholarly impartiality and carefully documented included Dissertaciones Históricas, three volumes, in 1844, and Historia de México desde la Epoca Colonial hasta Nerostos Díaz, five volumes, from 1849 to 1852. Okay, and... For our fifth entry, again, we are in the 1956, the Encyclopedia Americana. And in fact, for our sixth entry, when we get back from break, we'll remain in the 1956 Encyclopedia Americana. But our fifth entry is Alamance Creek, comma, North Carolina, comma, Battle of, or Battle of Alamance Creek in North Carolina. On May 16, 1771, sometimes termed the First Battle of the American Revolution, Official corruption and burdensome taxation in North Carolina roused public resentment so that the colonists banded themselves into regulators to reform conditions. The rough element resorted to riot and violence, whereupon the assembly passed the Johnson Bill, better known as the Bloody Act, which made rioting treason. Governor William Tryon collected 1,200 militia and on May 16th, 1771 at Alamance Creek, 20 miles west of Hillsborough, encountered and defeated about 2,000 regulators, of whom only about 1,000 were armed, inflicting a loss stated at from 9 to 200, while his own loss was about 60 or 70. Twelve regulators were tried for treason and condemned, but only six were executed. The others submitted, and ultimately nearly 6,500 took an oath of allegiance to the royal government. Okay, and with that, uh, let's go to break. And welcome back. Uh, our next 10 words are Alamani or Alamani. I know that sounds exactly the same. It's just a difference in one letter, um, which you can actually go to theoaktreejourneys.com to see the spelling of these. And uh, this is... 
Season 1, Episode 39, uh, so if you scroll all the way to the bottom or near the bottom, uh, you will see uh, the list of today's words. Okay, so uh, our seventh entry is Alamani, Luigi, and then Alameda, and then another Alameda, and then Alamo, comma, the, Alamo Heights, Alamode, Alamos, comma, loss, Alan, comma, William, and then we have Auckland Islands or Okananma Islands, um, which there is a pronunciation key. I did look at it. I did review it, and I said it out loud several times, and I still butchered it. So uh, whenever I'm staring at the key, I will hopefully get that right this time. So as promised, we are going to remain in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 for the sixth entry, and that's Alamani or Alamani, a confederacy of several German tribes which at the commencement of the third century after Christ lived near the Roman territory and came then and subsequently into conflict with the imperial troops. Caracalla first fought with them in 211. Yes, that's right, 211, 211 was the year, but it did not conquer them. Severus was likewise unsuccessful. About 250, so yes, 250, they began to cross the Rhine westward, and in 255, they overran Gaul along with the Franks. In 259, a body of them was defeated in Italy at Milan, and in the following year, they were driven out of Gaul by Posthumus. But the Alamanni did not desist from their incursions, notwithstanding the numerous defeats they suffered at the hands of the Roman troops. In the 4th century, they crossed the Rhine and ravaged Gaul, but were severely defeated by the Emperor Julian and driven back. Subsequently, they occupied a considerable territory on both sides of the Rhine, but at last Clovis broke their power in 496 and deprived them of a large portion of their possessions. Part of their territory was laterally formed into a duchy called Alemannia or Swabia, this name being derived from Suevi or Swabians, the name which they gave themselves. Okay, so a lot of history packed in there. And uh, for our seventh entry, we go to the Encyclopedia, the, I'm sorry, <laughs> we were in the Encyclopedia Americana, we go to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. And that is a person's name, Alamani, Luigi, or Luigi Alamani. And he lived from 1495 to 1556. He was born in Florence, distinguished Italian poet. His father of noble birth was a zealous partisan of the Medici, and Luigi stood high in their favor, till, in revenge for some real or fancied wrong, he conspired against the life of Cardinal Giuliano representative of Leo X. When this became known, he fled to Venice and thence on the accession of the cardinal to the papal chair to France. In 1527, encouraged by the Pope's reverses, he returned to Florence and urged the Republic to seek the protection of Charles V by means of Andrea Doria's friendly mediation. The Republic declared such a proposal treachery, and he sailed with Doria for Spain. Finally, he settled in France, employed as a diplomatist, by Francis I and Henry II. He died at Amboy 
He wrote epics, dramas, and minor poems much admired in their day and the honor of introducing blank verse into Italian poetry belongs either to Alamanni or Trision. And for our eighth entry, we go to the Encyclopedia Americana. We are switching back and forth several times. Uh, in this session, sometimes we stick with one or the other. Um, or we just go to the Encyclopedia Americana every once in a while. But this time we are, we've got a good healthy dose of both. Okay, so entry eight is Alameda. So Alameda, and we do have two entries for Alameda. But this one is a city in California in Alameda County, altitude 10 feet, <laughs> on an island in San Francisco Bay connected to neighboring cities including San Francisco by way of Oakland and by a tunnel and four bridges. Alameda is served by the Southern Pacific and the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroads. It is a naval air station and has a Coast Guard base. Although primarily a residential city, it has industrial plants including oil storage and is important for its shipbuilding, ship repair, and dry dock facilities. It was incorporated in 1854 and since 1917 has had a city manager form of government with five elected councilmen. The electric plant is owned by the city. Population in 1940 was 36,256. The population in 1950 was 60,000, I'm sorry, 63,425. And I really thought that this Alameda was not in the 1909 because it was later. Um, It was incorporated later, but this one says it was incorporated in 1854. So that really blew my uh, hypotheses out of the water. (laughs) That's all right. So for the second Alameda... We go back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. And this one is a town in Alameda County. Oh, wait. Yeah, no, actually. Oh, I got them backwards. <laughs> okay, so I read the wrong Alameda. That's okay. Uh, I'm going to read what it says in here, in the 1909, and then I'm going to read the second one uh, out of the 1956. So I got them backwards. All right, town in Alameda County, California, on the east side of the Bay of San Francisco, on a peninsula at the mouth of San Antonio Creek, and on the Southern Pacific Railroad, eight miles east-southeast of San Francisco, with which it is connected by a steam ferry. The town site was sold in 1852 for $14,000. In 1881, the valuation was $5 million, the improvements being worth $2 million. Its manufacturers include... Um, planing? I'm not really sure. It's rubbed out. Um, and grist mills, powder works, nut oil and soap factories, oil refinery, etc., it, was, it is well-lighted. It has liberal supply of pure water from artisan wells. It is a place of residence for persons doing business in San Francisco and a resort for excursion parties having a number of bathing establishments and being made attractive to visitors by its profusion of magnificent oak trees. 
Population in 1890, 11,164. I'm sorry, 11,165. And in 1900, 16,464. So, as you can see, the population definitely increased. And we got a little more history in the 1909 um, that went back a little bit. So, let's go to the one I was supposed to read um, in the 1956 Encyclopedia Americana. Um, because it, this one's not in the 1909. So this is a city in Idaho in Ban, Ban, Banok County. Five miles northwest of Pocatello, located on three state highways, originally a village formed of North Pocatello in Fairview in 1924, Alameda was incorporated as a city in 1945. So here we go. I knew I read that somewhere, um, but I was just reading the wrong one. Um, that's why the second, the city in Idaho, is not in the 1909. And... Uh, it was incorporated as a city in 1945. Population in 1940 was 2,691. And in 1950, 4,705. So there we go. So that's... I'm glad we read the other one in both, but still. <laughs> that's a funny mistake. So since we are in the 1956... Um, I do have it marked to read from both for Alamo, comma, the, or the Alamo... So let's go ahead and read what the 1956 version has to say, and then we'll go to the 1909. So in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956, it says this about the Alamo. A mission fort in San Antonio, Texas, founded as a Spanish Franciscan mission by Father Oliveras in 1718, it was named Mission San Antonio de Valero. By 1794, it had prospered, declined, and was secularized. It is often called the Cradle of Texas Liberty because during the Texan War of Independence for Mexico, it was besieged for 13 days by a Mexican army of more than 5,000 under Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. And on March 6, 1836, the entire garrison of 187 Americans was wiped out. After storming the fort, Three times the Mexicans succeeded in gaining entrance. Hand-to-hand -hand fighting resulted in which every defender was killed. Those slaughtered included Lieutenant Colonel William Barrett Travis, commander of the garrison, Davy Crockett, the frontiersman, James Bowie, co-commander, and James B. Bonham. About 30 non-combatants were spared. A few weeks after the panic, Santa Ana was defeated at San Jacinto, as the Texans rallied to, to the cry, remember the Alamo. And if you remember in school, um, at least when I was in school, that, that that's uh, what we were taught, remember the Alamo. Um, so let's look to see what the 1909 version has to say. Oh, sorry for the noise. <laughs> um, about it. Spanish and Portugal Alamo, the popular tree or cottonwood. Okay, that's just what it. That's just telling what it meant. A name of an ancient Spanish mission on the San Antonio River, Texas, now in the heart of the city of San Antonio. The period of its construction is unknown. It has historical importance from the massacre within its walls during the Texan War against Mexico for independence. 
The mission comprised a convent, chapel, and stockaded fort built for protection against the Indians. In 1836, February 23rd, this position, occupied by Colonel James Bowie, Colonel William B. Travis, and Colonel David Crockett, with 140 men, was besieged by the Mexicans under General Santa Ana, 4,000 strong. The siege lasted until March 6th, when, after a night attack, only six of the besieged remained alive, including Bowie. Oh, including Bowie, Travis, and Crockett, who were immediately butchered by order of Santa Anna. Only a servant woman and her child escaped. The child was afterward adopted by the Republic of Texas and educated at the public cost. At the Battle of San Jacinto, Jacinto soon after the massacre, Santa Anna was utterly defeated and captured by the Texan force, whose battle cry was, Remember the Alamo. A restoration of the ruins has been undertaken. So it says here, that a child, um, a servant woman and her child escaped. And what did this one say? 30 non-combatants were spared. So the 1909 only says two. Uh, but this one says 30. The 1956 says 30. Hmm. Interesting. Well, it, is, it does use the word spared, and this one uses the word escaped. So that, that's something worth looking into. Uh, if you want that to be a, um, a bonus podcast, just let me know. Uh, it is very intri- in, in, intriguing there. Um, but let's take a look at another entry. Alamo Heights. And from there, uh, we go to the 1956 Encyclopedia Americana. So, Alamo Heights is a city in Texas in Bexar County, altitude 750 feet, on the Southern Pacific and the Missouri, uh, and the Missouri, Kansas, and Texas railways. Five miles northeast of San Antonio, several families from San Antonio settled here in 1830, but development did not begin before 1889. It is primarily a residential community, population in 1940, was 5,700, and in 1950, 7,950. Our 12th entry, we go back to the 1909, the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary. Our 12th entry is a la mode, and it uh, is from French after the fashion, according to the fashion, a la morte, to the death, half death, desperately in a depressed state. Um, I thought it was going to mention, you know, something about pie <laughs> or ice cream a la mode. Um, but this one is a la mode, according to the fashion or a la mort, half dead, desperately in a depressed state. Well, <laughs> okay. Alrighty then. So our 13th entry, uh, it, we will remain in... The, Imperial, the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909, and that is Alamos, Los, or Los, I'm sorry, Los Alamos. And uh, it is a town in Mexico, state of Sonora, Department of Sinaloa, 110 miles north-northwest from Sinaloa. It is in a barren plain, but in a region famous for its silver mines. The houses are mostly of stone or brick, covered with stucco. Provisions are clear, 
I'm sorry, provisions are dear, being brought from a distance, and the town is very insufficiently supplied with water. Population, 10,000. And our 14th entry is a person's name, Allen, William, or William Allen. And we are still in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 uh, for this one. And uh, he was a cardinal, and he lived from 1532 to 1594, October 16th, born Russell Lancashire, England. He was educated at Oxford and in and in 1550 was elected fellow of Oriel College. In 1568, he founded the English College at Douai. In 1587, he was created cardinal. His influence prevented the decay of the Roman Catholic Church in England during his life. He wrote Apology for the Seminaries in 1581. His letters and memorials were reprinted in 1882, edited by Fathers of the Oratory. He died in Rome. And uh, before we go to our 15th entry, um, I just wanted to mention some sad news. Uh, my preacher uh, lost his wife uh, last week, uh, so please pray for him and, uh, and uh, his family and, and our church family. Uh, it was a devastating blow. She was a wonderful woman, uh, so we are going to miss her greatly. Uh, but thank you uh, for your prayers. Uh, for uh, for for him and his family. Um, so our 15th entry, um, we are going to read from both the um, New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 and the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And we are going to read from the 1909 first. And uh, this one just has it as Oland or Oland Islands. And it says, a numerous group of small islands and rocks at the entrance of the Gulf of Bothania, opposite Abo, about 25 miles from the Swedish coast, and 15 from that of Finland. They are called by the Finns Akvananma. About 80 of them are inhabited. Although these rocky isles are covered with but a thin stratum of soil, they bear scotch fir, spruce, and birch trees, and with proper cultivation produce barley and oats. Besides affording subsistence to a hardy breed of cattle, the inhabitants are of Swedish origin, skillful sailors, fishermen, and seal hunters. Population about 16,000. The largest, the largest of the islands, which gives its name signifying land of streams to the whole group, is about 18 miles long by 14 broad. It is moderately wooded and fruitful. Population nearly 11,000. These islands belonged formerly to Sweden, but were seized by Russia in 1809. Previous to this, they had several times changed hands between these two powers. In 1717, the Swedes were defeated by the Russians in a naval engagement near Åland, the first important exploit of the Muscovite navy. The importance of these islands as a military position led to the construction in the reign of the Emperor Nicholas of those strong fortifications at Balmersund, which in August 1854 were destroyed by the Anglo-French force commanded by Sir Charles Napier and Baragois de Hilliers. 2,000 prisoners were taken. This extensive fortress, supposed to have been but the first of an intended series in the Baltic, commanded the anchorage of Hitzeneres, capable of containing a large fleet. 
Okay, so let's go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 to see if they've added um, anything new uh, to it. Uh, so we have Oland or Okvinanma Islands, a group of about 300 islands of which about 80 are inhabitant. They lie in the Gulf of Bothnia between Finland and Sweden near the mouth of the Gulf of Finland, area 581 square miles. The principal island is Okvinanma or Oland, which is the largest and gives its names, name to the group. The islands, capital of which is Marinhamina, constitute a department of Finland. So you see, we were talking about Swede and Russia, and now they're talking about Finland. The islands were colonized by the Swedes in the 12th century and remained under their control until acquired by Peter the Great in 1714. They were restored to Sweden in 1721, but again in 1809 became Russian when they were seated with Finland. Throughout the 19th century, they were the center of international disputes and treaties. They were a part of independent Finland in 1917, but desired to be reunited to Sweden. Secession was denied, but autonomy granted in 1920. In 1939, they were fortified in order to prevent the Soviets' demand for bases. They were demilitarized again in 1944, but remained under Finnish rule. So we do we did get a little more uh, modern history out of there. Uh, but with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. And uh, for our next 10 words, there are um, a few that are pretty long. Well, one is super, super long. And just when we thought we got rid of the squished up AE, it's in our very first word for our next 10 words. Um, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce it. Uh, it's Alan G-I-A-C- C-A-E. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, to get the, the spelling of it, go to theoaktreejourneys.com. Um, and then our next entry is Alani or, Al or Allens. And then Alicorn E. Mendoza. Alaric the first. Alaric the second. Alarm. Alarm, comma, electric fire. Alarum. Alary. Alary, comma, jewels. And this time, we are only in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 once um, for the next 10 words. Uh, but don't worry, uh, we will switch back and forth in our next section uh, quite a bit. Um, so yeah, so let's go ahead and go to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. Uh, before I do, I just want to update you. On NaNoWriMo, it's going very well. Uh, last week was so, so much better uh, than the first week. I think I was still decompressing from my move. Um, both my dog and I were. Uh, so it was just a slow start and, a, and slow going. But I picked it right back up uh, the second week. And now we're heading into the third week. So if you are participating in NaNoWriMo, fantastic uh, congratulations. Keep going. Uh, this is your third week. Um, you got this. And uh, and just keep just keep going. If you are not participating in NaNoWriMo, um, but you know someone who is, 
give them a little extra courtesy because writing 50,000 words in a month is a huge task, a huge, huge task. And, uh, my hat's off to anyone who completes it. it, it even if you don't complete it, my hat's off to anyone who tries it, uh, because it is very difficult. So good luck to all of my NaNoWriMo-ites out there. Um, so just wanted to, to give you a heads up on that. Now I did receive a decline email uh, last last Wednesday uh, for a little short story, but that's okay. That happens. Uh, I will be completely shocked uh, one day. Surprisingly, uh, you know, it's surprised and just gleeful, a gleeful type shock and surprise. Um, whenever I get that, yes. So if you are a writer or some type of artist or creative person and you, you got those no's, just keep on trucking. But if you got your yes, that's awesome. Uh, celebrate your no's and your yeses. Okay, so let's move on to our 16th entry because you don't want to hear me talking about my life this whole time. Um, it's it's kind of boring, but uh, it's my life and I love it. All right, so our 16th entry is... Alan G A Chai. Alan, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it again. So, so there you have it. Go, go to theoaktreeattorneys.com. Uh, go to uh, season one, episode thirty-nine, and you'll see the spelling. It's our sixteenth entry, and it's very long, All right? Uh, but it is a natural order of diatelidonious plants allied to morticia and containing but a very few known species, trees, and large shrubs, of which the greater number belong to India. The American genus Nisa, or Nisa, called tupelo, pepperidge, or sour gum, formerly classed here. So they were formerly classed here. The one-celled fruit and pendulous albuminous seeds constitute marks of distinction from Morticia, the fruit of Alangium, the Capitulum, and Ahexaptulum, natives of the East Indies, are eatable. It says eatable, not edible. But Musilangius and insipid. The timber is good. The roots are aromatic. Okay, so I know I completely butchered that whole entry. My apologies, um, but you could definitely take a look at it if you're curious. And for our 17th entry, let's go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. Make sure I'm on the right page. Ah, here we go. Alani or Allens. And this is really interesting. I, I didn't read the whole thing. Um, but it, it sounded interesting. One of the warlike tribes which migrated from Asia westward at the time of the decline of the Roman Empire. They are first met with in the region east of the Caucasus Mountains where Pompeii fought with them. From this center, they spread over the south of modern Russia to the confines of the Roman Empire. They were engaged in war with Rome in the time of Hadrian, but were defeated by Arion. Marcus Aurelius had much difficulty in keeping them out of the empire, and Tacitus concluded a treaty with them in 275 AD. About a century later, those on the banks of the lower Dunabim were conquered by the Huns 
after which most of them joined the ravaging expeditions of that people. They accompanied Radagius or Radagais on his march into Italy in 405, and after his defeat, they settled first on the Rhine, afterward about 411 in modern Port Portugal. Being there completely defeated by the Visigoths, they joined the Vond Vondals, among whom they had become lost to history. So, see, it's very, very interesting. Um, I, I want to know more about them, especially since they were lost to history. Uh, but there's the Rhines again. <laughs> so, so, there we go. All right, and our 18th entry, let's go back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. And this is, this is a name. And uh, I did not put his entire name on here. So it's Alarcon e Mendoza, Juan Ruiz de, or Juan Ruiz de Alarcon e Mendoza. So I need to make a note to make sure I get his full name in there. And there we go. And let's see, he was one of the most eminent of Spanish dramatists, born in Tosco, Mexico, about the end of the 16th century. He died in 1639. He belonged to the ancient family of the Ruizes of Alarcon, Alarcon, of which a branch had immigrated to America. Having studied at the college that had been instituted in Mexico, he removed to Spain, where he is mentioned as Riotor del Real Consejo, de los indias reporter of the royal council of the indies in 1622 his early success and his haughtiness towards the public and his brother writers and his consciousness of superior powers made him the object of venomous epigrams by the most famous poets of the time in which the deformed upstart from new spain with his pride and his contemptuousness was held up to public ridicule even during his lifetime his best pieces were attributed to others, oh goodness, and were printed and represented under the names of more favored poets. This early withdrawal and oblivion of his name, together with the scarcity of his works and the eclat of Lope de Vigas and Calderon's dramas, have been the cause that he has seldom been mentioned, but little appreciated by historians of literature, even to the latest times. Poor guy. Yet some of the best critics rank him next to Calderon and Lope de Vega as a dramatic writer. Besides many single or detached pieces printed in collections, he published a number of his Comedias, Volume 1, Madrid, 1628, Volume 2, Barcelona, 1634. Harsenbuch began a collected edition at Madrid in 1848. He attempted almost all the kinds of drama in vogue in his time, and was especially eminent in the heroic, as the best specimens of which may be mentioned, El Tejedar de Segoria and Ganar Amigos, or La Que, La que Mucho, Vel Mucho Chesta. His mastery in delineating character is shown in the Comedias de Costumbres, or character comedies, of which he may be held as the creator. The best known are La Verdad Sospechoso, imitated by Cornell and his mentor, and Los Perdis Uen, Walls Have Ears, which are yet represented on the Spanish stage. 
Of his comedies of intrigue, the best specimen is Toro S. Ventura. It does not appear that he wrote any autos or sacramental allegorical dramas, though his two pieces, El Antichristo and Quien Mal Ande and Malacabo, betray a tendency to aesthetic mysticism. Lope and Calderon, the Corify of that age, are the only dramatists that excel Alcaron. Combining in no mean degree the characteristics of both, he excels them in purity of language and elevation of moral feeling. Well, can you imagine being so hated that you're not even given credit for your own work? Um, just wow. <laughs> that, is, that is insane. Uh, I remember uh, back in college, my first year of college, I had a friend who... Uh, who took all of my who took some of my work and and got A's on on it and uh yeah that that was <laughs> that was a good lesson for me but uh and one that I still remember to this day I just cannot imagine having my professional work that was just college work cannot imagine having my professional work done that way okay so we have Alaric the first is our 19th entry, and we are sticking with the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. And uh, for the next, uh, for the rest of the, this section. All right, so Alaric the first. And uh, that means um, noble ruler. It's a form of Athelaric, which means noble ruler. Let's see if he was a noble ruler, shall we? <laughs> He died in 410, belonged to one of the, of the noblest families of the Visigoths. He makes his first appearance in history in 394 as leader of the Gothic auxiliaries, oh, sorry, auxiliaries of Theodosius in his war with Eugenius, but after the death of the former, he took advantage of the dissensions and weakness that prevailed in the Roman Empire to invade 395 Thrace, Macedon, Thessaly, and Illyria devastating the country and threatening Constantinople itself. Rufinus, the minister of Arcadius, appears to have sacrificed Greece in order to rescue the capital, and Athens was obliged to secure its own safety by ransom. He proceeded to plunder and devastate the Pel Peloponnesus, but was interrupted by the landing of Stilacho in Elis with the troops of the west. Stilacho endeavored to him and the Goths on the Peninius, but he broke through his lines and escaped with his prisoners and booty to Illyria, of which he was appointed governor in 396 by the emperor Arcadius, who was frightened. So the governor only uh, elevated him because he was frightened of Alaric I's successes and hoped by conferring this dignity on him to make him a peaceful subject instead of a lawless enemy. In 402, he invaded Upper Italy, and Honorius, the emperor of the west, fled from Rome to the more strongly fortified Ravenna. On the way to Gaul, Alaric I was met and defeated by Stilacho at Polynesia on the Tenero, but it was not till the following autumn that the result of the Battle of Verona forced him to retire into Illyria. Through the mediation of Stilacho, Alaric I concluded a treaty with Honoris, according to which he was to advance to Epirus and thence attack Arcadius in conjunction with the troops of Stilacho. 
The projected expedition did not take place, yet Alaric I demanded identification for having undertaken it. So he didn't even do it, but he wanted payment for it. And Honorius, by the advice of Stilacho, promised him 4,000 pounds of gold. Oh my. When, after the death of Stilacho, Honorius failed to fulfill his promise, Alaric I advanced with an army and invested Rome, which he refused to leave till he had obtained the promise of 5,000 pounds of gold. So... So he's he's changing it from four thousand to five thousand plus not only that thirty thousand pounds of silver, but neither did this negotiation produce any satisfactory result. And Alaric I again besieged Rome in four o nine. Famine soon rendered some arrangement necessary, and in order to to this, the Senate proclaimed Attalus the prefect of the city emperor instead of Honorius, but Alaric I soon forced him publicly to abdicate. The renewed negotiations with Honorius proved equally fruitless with the former, and Alaric I was so irritated at a perfidious attempt to fall upon him by surprise at Ravenna, they advanced on Rome for the third time. His victorious army entered the city in 410 August 24th and continued to pillage it for six days, though Alaric I strictly forbade his soldiers to dishonor women or destroy religious buildings. When he quitted Rome, it was only to prosecute the conquest of Sicily. The occurrence of a storm, however, which his ill-constructed vessels were not able to resist, forced him to abandon the project for the time, and his death soon afterwards at Cosenza in Calabria prevented his resuming it. In order that his remains might not be discovered by the Romans, they were deposited in the bed of the river Pusinto, and the captives who had been employed in the work were put to death. Rome and all Italy celebrated the death of Alaric I with public festivities, and the world enjoyed a momentary repose, but Alaric I himself was much less barbarous than his followers. He admired and sought to preserve those monuments of civilization with which the Eternal City abounded, and checked the excesses of his fierce soldiery. Yet through him the Goths learned the way to Rome. See Simonis Versuk inir Gusulich des A Guten Eng eighteen fifty eight in Ecken der Kampf der West Goten u Romer unter a Lips eighteen seventy six. Wow, <laughs> that's that's just crazy. Okay, and our 20th entry is actually another Alaric. This is Alaric II. And he was the 8th king of the West Goths, or Visigoths. Succeeded his father in 484. He was of a peaceful disposition and wished to live on friendly terms with the Franks. His dominions were very extensive. Besides Hispania, Terraconesis, and Botica. He possessed numerous rich provinces in Gaul and formed an alliance which still further increased his power with Gondedband and Theodoric, the latter of whom was his father-in-law and king of the East Goths. At length, however, he came into collision with the Frankish monarch Clovis, whose cupidity had 
been excited by the extent and fertility of the territories over which Alaric II ruled. An excuse was found for breaking the peace which existed between the two nations and the fact that Alaric II was a zealous Arian. This circumstance had given great offense to many of his subjects who were Orthodox Catholics and ostensibly to vindicate the true doctrine the newly converted barbarian Clovis declared war against him. The result was fatal to Alaric II. He was slain by the hand of Clovis himself at Viol near Poitiers and his forces completely routed. Alaric II is said to have been indolent and luxurious in his youth, but this may simply imply that he was not fond of those sanguinaria pleasures which captivated his savage contemporaries. He was tolerant in his religious convictions, though an Arian, he did not persecute the Catholics. Oh, though, though an Arian, he did not persecute the Catholics. Okay. He enacted several useful statutes and kept a watchful eye on all parts of his kingdom. It was during his reign that the Brevarium Alicinium, or Code of Alaric II, was drawn up. It is a selection of imperial statutes and writings of the Roman Juris Consults. Alaric II sent copies of it to all his governors, ordering them to use it and no other. An edition of it was published by Sicard at Basel in 1528 and by Hanel at Leipzig in 1849. That's pretty cool. So it was interesting to see Alaric I just ravage and savage everything, and then Alaric II peaceful, but he was slain uh, anyway, even though he was peaceful. It's very sad. And our 21st entry is Alarm which is a verb, and that is to give a signal to warn of approaching danger, to surprise, to arouse, to, to danger. Noun, an outcry to announce danger, sudden surprise, terror, alarming, adjective, terrifying awakening, alarmed, alarmingly, in a manner to excite apprehension, alarmist, noun, one prone to, ter prone to terrify with danger. Synonym of alarm, noun, terror, fear, fright, consternation, trepidation, panic, apprehension, affright, dismay, agitation, disquiet, disturbance. Okay, our 22nd entry is alarm, comma, electric fire or electric fire alarm. And it just says see electrical communication, comma, systems of. So that's all we get. <laughs> Our 23rd entry is uh, alarum, noun, in Old English, a call to arms, a piece of mechanism, and a clock by which a loud noise is produced at any fixed time. So that was alarum. Our 24th entry is alary, so alary adverb, in Old English, this is pretty cool. Old English, it means wing-like. Elate, winged, furnished with appendages like wings. Oh, I want to keep that. Larry. Okay. And our 25th entry before break is Larry, comma, Jules, or Jules Larry, And he was a French dramatic composer born in Mantua, Italy in 1814. He was educated at Milan Conservatory conservatory and became musical director of the Theatre des Italiens at Paris. His works include Rosamondo, 
I'm sorry, Rosamonda, 1840, Law Redemption, 1851, Sardinopal, 1852, La Vo Voix Humaine, 1861, Laconda Gratis, 1866, etc. And with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. Our next 10 words um, are Alas, Alashir, Alaska, Alaska Highway, Alaska Railroad Act, Alasio, Alistair, Alation, Alasi, and Alu, Jean. And before we continue with those, uh, Last week was Veterans Day, so I hope uh, you were able to thank the veterans. So thank you, uh, veterans, for all that you, you've done for us. Oh, we appreciate you. And uh, let's get into our 26th entry. We are going to be in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 for the next three. And... Entries and if you notice, Alaska was listed in there. Um, even though Alaska is not as long um, as the other, as a few others were, I am still going to take a break. Uh, so I do have a scheduled break there, just to kind of break it up because it is still pretty long. It's just not as long. Okay, so let's uh, go to number twenty-six, which is alas. Alas. I like that word. Alas. Uh, it means an exclamation of sorrow or pity. So, sorrow or pity. And it's from Old French, alas, from ah, la, las, which means wretched. So, ah, wretched. Um, in Latin, ah, lasis, wearied. French, he, las, weary. And, uh, P-R-O-V, oi, loss, which means ah, wretched me, alas. So, so yeah, just, just alas. So wretched. Okay, and our 27th entry is Alashir, which means the exalted city, ancient Philadelphia, city of Asia Minor, Posolic of Anatolia, 75 miles east by south from Smyrna, at the northeast base of Mount Tamalus. It was founded by Atalus Philadelphus, king of Pergamos, about B.C. 200, and is famous as the seat of one of the seven churches of Asia. It is still a place of considerable importance and carries on a thriving trade by caravans, chiefly with Smyrna. It is surrounded by a wall and is of large extent, but the streets are narrow and dirty. There are many interesting remains of antiquity. Population, about 8,000, including 250 Greek families. And again, that is in the early 1900s. Okay, and our 28th entry. So buckle, buckle up. This is Alaska. And to see a map of Alaska, just type in you know, Alaska and you'll be able to see a map. There is a map in this encyclopedia. Now, I'm not reading from the 1956 because it is triple the length of the 1909. Um, so we're just going to read the, the 1909 version. 
and you can look up, uh, if you're interested, you can look up more about Alaska, the modern life of Alaska. Okay, so Alaska, a territory of the United States occupying the extreme northwest of America and adjacent islands, purchased of Russia by the U.S. in 1867 for the sum of, here we go, ready? $7,200,000. It consists of a great peninsula about the Arctic and Pacific Oceans and Bering Sea, together with a long coast region between British Columbia and the Pacific and its adjacent islands, and many islands between America and Asia. The islands have an aggregate area of over 30,000 square miles, and the entire area of the territory is 590,307 square miles, or more than that of the original 13 states. The population is 19, in 1900 was 63,592, probably increased by 25,000 by the gold immigration in 1901 to 1903. The country naturally divides itself into three districts. The Yukon District, a wide stretch of rolling plains with many lakes, swamps, and peatlands, and the low ranges of hills besides isolated mountains watered by the Great River from which it is named. The Aleutian District, including the islands of that name and many others of the mountains looking towards them, mostly a volcanic formation, with many prairies between the mountains and the sea. And the Sitkin District, including 500 miles of coast separating British Columbia from the Pacific with the adjacent islands with the greatest mountain region of North America. Among the mountains of Alaska are Mount McKinley, 20,464 feet high, the loftiest mountain in North America, Mount St. Elias, 18,024 feet, Mount Wrangell, 17,500 feet, Mount Crillon, 15,900 feet, Mount Fairweather, 15,292 feet, Mount Vancouver, 15,666 feet, and Mount Cook, 13,758 feet. Alaska contains the most remarkable glaciers in the world, of which the best known are near the head of the Sim Canal and Glacier Bay. The Muir Glacier has at its discharge a front 200 feet high and 3 miles wide. The Pacific Glacier discharges a great number of icebergs. The Malaspina Glacier has an area of over 500 square miles and its surface elevation is over 1,500 feet. Valdez Glacier has a frontage of cliffs of ice 15 miles wide. Alaska abounds in hot and mineral springs. The Yukon rises in British Columbia back at the Sitcon District and its course is at first northwest. Turning west, it flows through the main body of Alaska into Bering Sea. It is in impeded by shallows and islands in the middle of its course and empties by a delta 70 miles wide with bars at its mouth, but it is 2,000 miles long and for 1,000 miles of its course 5 miles wide and ranks with the Mississippi and Amazon as one of the greatest rivers of the world. The tribes of the native population were not separately enumerated in the census of 1900, but in 1890 were reported as follows. Inuits or Eskimos, 15,000. Aleuts, 2,145, Creoles, 1,756, Tina, 5,100, Thinglets, 3,000, and Heidel, 788. The white population was reported in 1900 as 30,493. The name Eskimo was given by their neighbors to the natives in derision, meaning raw fish eaters. Oh, oh wow. 
They call themselves Inuits. I, I remember someone saying that Eskimo was derogatory. I didn't realize that's what it meant. Um, so let's think twice before using the term Eskimo. They call themselves Inuits, which means our people. The Alaskans are superior physically to the Eskimos of Greenland and Labrador. Being muscular and often six feet tall with full beards, they speak a common language, but each locality has its own dialect. Their dwellings appear as a round mound of earth covered with grass with a small opening at the top for the escape of smoke. The entrance being a small and narrow hallway to the main room, which is from 12 to 20 feet in diameter, but without light or ventilation, while small bedrooms sometimes open into the main room. They live on the meat of the moose, reindeer, bear, and smaller fur-bearing animals, and upon fish, the white whale, walrus, seal, and various waterfowl. They are inveterate smokers, men, women, and children. The census of 1900 reported the native population as 29,536, more than half Eskimos. I'm not sure why they keep using the term Eskimos here. So we'll say Inuits. They are willing to work and adapt themselves to civilized conditions. The chief native occupation is fishing. The waters abound in salmon, herring, trout, bass, mackerel, and halibut. And the codfish banks rival those of Newfoundland. Wells were formerly common in their waters and were an important dependence for the support and comfort of the people, and many whalers of the Arctic fleet visited them. Fifty whale ships came in 1841 and 278 in 1851, which, in which year the catch was valued at $14 million, but the business has declined till only five or six whale ships come in the course of a year. The salmon fishery has grown to great proportions. The immense canning establishments have been built and in 1901, the salmon pack amounted to $6,926,167. In 1899, the canneries employed 1,298 white laborers, 830 Inuits, uh, I did have to put Inuits there, and 1,859 Chinese. It is not a very desirable industry for the country. The earliest interest was the seal fishery. The early explorers reported great opportunities for fur trade, and many Russian adventurers gained wealth in this pursuit, while not a few met with disaster. The Russian-American company, chartered in 1799, controlled the country for half a century, trying to rival the British Hudson Bay Company. The most important furs were the sealskins taken at the Pribilof Islands and sent to London and Belgium to be dressed, where they supplied the most of the sealskins for the markets of the world. After the purchase of Alaska by the U.S. in 1867, the sealing of Pribilof Islands was leased by the government to the Alaska Commercial Company in 1870 for 20 years. The company employed first four the company employed four steamers and a number of sailing vessels and employed native seal fishers paying 40 cents for each skin taken. I just have to say just ugh. <laughs> Okay. They also paid the government $55,000 per annum for their franchise, besides an internal revenue tax of $2 each for $2 for each skin, and the company furnished fuel and food for the inhabitants of the islands. The skins were sold in Europe for $15 each, and it is estimated that the aggregate value since 1867 has been more than $50 million. There has been great difficulty in enforcing the rules protecting the interests of the company and meant to save the seals 
from unlawful and wasteful slaughter. International negotiations have not been successful, and there have been great fears of their total extermination. The mineral resources of Alaska include extensive coal and oil fields and immense areas of gold-producing gravels and mountains of gold, silver, and copper and iron ores. Marble of superior quality and inexhaustible quantity, bismuth and koalin gypsum, graphite, tin, amethyst, zoolites, garnets, agates, carnelians, and fossil ivory are found, and large quantities of sulfur almost pure. Coal deposits have long been known and occasionally utilized by steamers. Silver was produced in 1899 to the amount of $181,000. Gold was first mined about 1870 on Douglas Island in southeastern Alaska. Works were erected to crush the quartz, and the town of Jania grew up on the mainland opposite. About 1,500 stamps are used continually. Gold was discovered in the Yukon District of Canada in 1886, and in 1887, Circle City was founded by miners on the Alaska side of the boundary. But the great development of gold mining was nearly 10 years late, see Klondike, and in 1898 to 1899, the wonderful mines were discovered at Cape Nome. The Klondike mines yielded about $7 million in 1901, and the entire output of Alaska in 1903 was estimated at $20 million. This changed all economic conditions in Alaska, and Nome grew to have a reputed population of 40,000. There are two distinctly marked climates in Alaska, that of the southeast district with the coast and islands affected by the warm current of the Pacific, while north of the mountains there is a short, almost tropical summer with a thermometer during the long days sometimes rising to 100 degrees, but in winter falling from 50 degrees to 78 degrees below zero. And let's take a short break. The Yukon District along the rivers in the eastern part is limited forests of cottonwoods and Norway spruce. Large portions of the Sitkan District have dense forests of spruce, hemlock, and cedar. The U.S. Agricultural Experiment Station in the Yukon Valley has shown that oats, barley, wheat, and hardy garden vegetables can be raised with profit, and the country in summer is covered with beautiful wild, wild flowers and red and black currants, cranberries, raspberries, thimbleberries, gooseberries, killinickberries, salmonberries, blueberries, heathberries, and roseberries, and in some places, wild strawberries, and through southern Alaska, between the mountains and the sea, the prairies are covered with perennial wild grasses. Yet practically as yet agriculture has very narrow limitations, the Aleutian Islands have no large trees, but the coast from Kadiak to British Columbia is covered with forests which are more valuable as we go south, including white birch and poplar, sometimes of great size, as well as extensive forests of spruce, hemlock, and cedar. In view of the decline of the whaling industries and the gradual extinction of walrus and caribou, the Reverend Sheldon Jackson undertook to introduce reindeer from Siberia in 1890. At first, he could not secure the help of the U.S. government, and in 1891 brought the first herd of 16 reindeer across Bering Straits by the help of private subscriptions. Later, the government assisted the work. Congress appropriating $6,000 in 1894 and gradually increasing the appropriation to $25,000 in 1903, 
and the government becoming owner of the larger part of the 54 herds, including over 6,000 reindeer distributed through the country in 1903. The reindeer feed in winter on a moss which covers vast region, regions of Siberia and Alaska. Though covered with deep and even crusted snow, the deer break through and burrow with their broad hooves until they obtain food. An attempt to bring reindeer to Alaska in 1898 from Lapland was unsuccessful mainly because of bad transportation from Seattle. But the lap herders brought with them have been distributed through the country and were employed in teaching the work to the natives. Most of the deer are owned by the government, which loans a certain number to mission stations or individuals who have shown ability. Deer are owned by 60 individuals, of whom 44 are Inuits. The present rate of natural increase doubles their number every three years, and even without further importation will secure the permanence of this useful domestic animal in Alaska. In the winter of 1902 to 1903, reindeer teams carried the mail from Nome to Candle City, on the Arctic Ocean, 260 miles, hauling heavy loads of passengers and freight in a journey of eight days, for which dog teams would have required 15 or 20 days. The reindeer can travel at night as well as in daylight. They make also good packers in summer and can be ridden in the saddle. In the winter of 1897 to 1898, relief was carried by reindeer to 400 whalers imprisoned in the Arctic ice near Point Barrow, who would otherwise have perished. The reindeer communication has been of vital importance in the development of the gold mining communities. The Russian government has substituted reindeer for horses in its caravan service in Siberia with a saving of $60,000 a year, and the Alaskan service promises as good results. While the domestic use of these gentle animals promises great and permanent betterment to the native condition, there are excellent harbors in the southern coast accessible all the year as far north as Sitka and Junia. Ocean steamers ply to Nome from the port of St. Michael's, 60 miles from the mouth of the Yukon, as well as to Victoria, B.C., uh, Seattle, and San Francisco. The Yukon is navigable about three months by shallow draft sternwheel steamers, which connect with the ocean steamers at St. Michael's and ascend the river 1,500 miles to Eagle City. From Skagway, on an inlet 160 miles northwest from Janu, a railroad crosses White Pass to White House Rapids, where passengers go by steamer on the upper Yukon to Dawson. Telegraph lines connect Skagway and White Pass, Eagle City, and Valdez, and there is a cable from St. Michael's to Nome. Among the more important towns which have grown up, Nome is the largest with a reported population in 1902 of 40,000. Genoa had at the same time a permanent population of 3,000, Skagway of 1,500. The census of 1,900 included 78 settlements. In 1901, 186 American vessels and 127 foreign entered Alaskan ports. Foreign imports of merchandise into Alaska in 1901 amounted to $558,000, exports $2,534,000. Gold to the amount of $15,816,000 was brought through Alaska, product mostly of the Yukon District of Canada. The Russian explorers in their first settlements prepared the way for schools and churches. They founded a Russian-Greek church in 1794 at Kadiak, and during the century established congregations and chapels at every Aleut settlements, as well as at St. Michael and at Sitka and Junia and other towns.
1902, they reported 18 Russian ministers in Alaska. They have been followed since 1867 by missions of Roman Catholic and Protestant churches in America with great devotion. The U.S. government has also established schools for white and native children in every considerable town. In 1902 to 190, excuse me, in 1901 to 1902, there were 40 public schools, including training schools for girls and boys at Sitka. The total enrollment in 1902 was 1,791. The schools have been a great part of the care of the missionaries and owe much of their effectiveness to the direction and charitable labor. Many Swedes, Finns, and Germans were employed by the Russian-American Fur Company, and a Lutheran minister was sent to Sitka in their behalf in 1839. Swedish missionaries in more recent times and others from Norway have joined the American missionaries and teachers in the work of elevation. The public schools are supported by direct appropriations by Congress, the first grant being in 1884 of $25,000. The annual appropriation by Congress has laterally been $30,000, and many incorporated towns have added to this one-half of the fees collected for licenses. Alaska is a territory incompletely organized. From its purchase, it had at first a military government, a company of the U.S. Army being stationed at Sitka. In 1877, this was withdrawn, and a naval police substituted. Alaska has no general legislator and is controlled directly by Congress. Its governor, residing at Sitka, surveyor general, attorneys, and judges are appointed by the President of the United States. Towns of a certain size are allowed to incorporate and elect local governing bodies. There are three judicial districts with headquarters at Genoa, St. Michael's, and Eagle City. The three judges appoint commissioners who act as justices of the peace, recorders, probate judges, etc., Congress adopted a new criminal code in 1899 and a civil code in 1900. The Homestead Law was extended to Alaska in 1898. The question of the Canadian boundary, after dragging for years, was pressed into international importance by the development of the Klondike Mines. The decision hung upon the meaning of the treaty signed between Great Britain and Russia in 1825. This was referred to arbitrators in a modus vivendi, Agreed upon in 1901, and most of the claims of the United States were approved. A treaty was signed between the United States and Great Britain in January 1903, and the decision of the boundary was referred to an international commission, which held its first session in London in September of 1903. Wow, so a lot of history packed in there. Um, lots and lots of history. So a lot of this I, I did not know, and I didn't like some of the... Uh, well, you know what I didn't like. <laughs> I won't go back into it. But let's go on uh, to our 29th entry, which is Alaska Highway. And for that one, we go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So Alaska Highway. A highway from Dawson Creek, British Columbia to Fairbanks, Alaska, built by the United States Army engineers and other government agencies during World War II as a military necess necessity to connect Army installations in Alaska with the United States by a protected land route. Construction started from Whitehorse, Yukon Territory in April and from Dawson Creek in May 1942. It was completed in November of the same year at an estimated cost of $110 million. Dawson Creek on the eastern border of British Columbia may be reached by two routes, via Edmonton and via Prince George. 
It is 962 miles from Great Falls, Montana to Dawson Creek via Edmonton, and about 650 miles of this route to Paved, 1954. Oh, 650 miles of this route, 615 miles of the route is paved. And that was in 1954. From Seattle, Washington to Dawson Creek via Vancouver and Prince George is 839 miles, of which about 470 miles is paved, and that's in 1954. From Dawson Creek, it is 918 miles to Whitehorse, 1,221 miles to the Alaska boundary, 1,523 miles to Fairbanks, and 1,644 miles to Anchorage. The 26-foot highway has a graveled all-weather surface from Dawson Creek to the Alaska border and is paved from the boundary to Fairbanks and to Anchorage. It is maintained the year around. The northern end of the Alaska Highway has several branches and connects with the Richardson Highway and other parts of the Alaska Highway system. From Whitehorse, the Mayo Road runs north to Dawson with some portions of the road still under construction in 1954. At Haynes Junction, 92 miles west of Whitehorse, the Haynes Highway, 154 miles in length, branches off to the port of Haynes in southeastern Alaska. This road is usually closed by snow during the winter months. Other branches of the Alaska Highway include the Taylor Highway to Eagle on the Yukon Valley, excuse me, Yukon River, the Dawson Road to Dawson-Yukon Territory, the Glen Highway to Anchorage, where it connects with a highway to Seward and Homer, the Richardson Highway to Valdez, with a branch to Chitina, the Elliott Highway from Fairbanks to Living Good, and the Stees Highway from Fairbanks to Circle on the Yukon River. Under construction in 1954 and scheduled to open in 1957 was the Denali Highway to McKinley National Park. And sticking to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956, let's go to Alaska Railroad Act. Approved April 1915 for the building of the Sestina or Seaward Route extending from Seaward on Resurrection Bay to Fairbanks. 467 miles inland on the Tanana River. It includes the former Alaska Northern Railroad, purchased for $1,150,000, running from Seaward through Kenia Peninsula, almost to Nick on the Matanuska River, a distance of about 100 miles. A sideline was constructed from Matanuska Junction to the Matanuska Coal Region, perhaps the most valuable field of high-grade coal in Alaska. The cost of construction of the line from Seaward to Fairbanks, including the 38-mile Matanuska branch and a branch from Fairbanks to Chattanooga, was about $56 million. These branches give the road a total mileage of 540. The main line from Seaward to Fairbanks was opened in 1923. And our 31st entry is also in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956, and that is Alasio. Alasio is a small seaport and summer resort in the province of Genoa, Italy, situated on the Gulf of Genoa, 48 miles southeast of the city of Genoa. The population in 1939 was 4,521. And... Again, in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956, we have Alistair. So Alistair, you may remember this in Greek mythology, a surname given to Zeus as the Avenger. 
Also the name of an avenging demon who follows the sinner and drives him to fresh crime. In the Middle Ages, the name was given to a house demon, the skeleton in the cupboard. Ooh. That that would have been good for Halloween. (laughs) All right. Um, Let's move on to our 33rd entry. And for our 33rd entry, we go to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. And that is elation. And it's a name used to designate all those languages not connected with the two great families of speech, Aryan and Semitic. And our 34th entry, uh, we are still in the 1909 for this one, but then we switch back over to 1956 for our 35th entry. So our 34th entry is Alausi, Alausi, which is a town of the Republic of Ecuador, South America, Province of Chimborosa, 70 miles east of Guayaquil, 7,980 feet above the sea in a fertile valley of the Andes. Population is 6,000. Again, that was early 1900s. Okay, so our 35th entry. Let's go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And we have... Alo Jean, comma Jean, or Jean Alo, called Le Roman, and this person was a French painter, born Bordeaux, 1786, died Paris, March 3rd, 1864. He was a pupil of Paris, Narcisse Guerin, in 1815, took the Prix de Rome with a painting of Briseis finding the body of Patroclus in the tent of Achilles. He executed many portraits. His historical paintings in the Museum of Versailles are famous. Battle of Villaviciosa, Valenciennes, taken by assault by Louis XIV, States General of Paris under Philippe de Valois, Assembly of Notables at Rouen under Henry IV, States General of Paris under Louis VIII, and the reading of the will of Louis IX. He spent nine years on painting the 86 pictures which decorate the Hall of the States General of Paris. He was director of the Academy of France from 1847 to 1850, and in 1851 became a member of the Academy. His brother, Jean-Paul Allot, called Le Gentle, born in 1788, was director of the School of Design at Bordeaux. Okay, and with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. Our next 10 words are Alava, Dune, Miguel, Ricardo de Alb or Albi, Alba, Alba or Alba, Fernandez, Alvarez de Toledo, Duke of. Say that one 10 times fast. Albacete, Albanes or Albanes, Alba Longa, Albane, Saint, Alba. Daniel, comma, Charles, and Albani. And uh, we are going to be in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 for most of these. Um, There's going to be one entry that we'll read from both, and then one entry that is strictly in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. But for these next ten words, we are, uh, for nine of these words, we are going to read from the 1909. 
Okay, and uh, our 36th entry is Alava, comma, Dune Miguel Ricardo de, or Dune Miguel Ricardo de Alava. Spanish general, lived from 1771 to 1843, born Vittoria of a noble family in the province of Alava. At first a partisan of France, he changed to the English side in 1811. He gained the confidence of Wellington, in whose army he became Spanish commissary. In the War of Independence, he distinguished himself. In 1820, after the Revolution, he became Captain General of Aragon. In the Cortes of 1823, he voted for the suspension of royal authority, and when absolute monarchy was reestablished in Spain, he took refuge in Brussels in England, till recalled by the regent Christina. In 1834, he was Spanish ambassador to London. Later, he showed a new zeal for the moderate system. After the insurrection of La Granja, he refused to swear to the Constitution of 1812 and retired to France, where he died. And number 37 is Alb, or Albi. And actually, I put more than... I put two E's in there, so... It's Alb without the E or Alb with the E. And I accidentally had it written down with two E's instead of one E. Uh, but it's a noun, and it's a long vestment of white lin linen extending to the feet worn in early times by all ecclesiastics at divine service, and now worn by the Roman Catholic clergy. It differed from the more modern surplice, which is a modification of it, in having narrow narrower and shorter sleeves. At the foot and wrists were embroidered ornaments called apparels. In the ancient church, newly baptized persons were obliged to wear a similar garment for eight days, and hence catechumens were called abati, and the Sunday after Easter on which they usually received baptism came to be called Dominica in Albus. See Whit Sunday. Okay. And number 38 is Alba, a very ancient city of North Italy in the province of Cuneo on the right bank of the Tenero, 31 miles southeast from Turin, in a plain surrounded by hills. The neighborhood produces much wine and silk besides corn, oil, and fruits. The town has an extensive trade in cattle. It is an episcopal seat. The cathedral was founded in 1486. Population was 12,259. Our 39th entry is Alba, comma, or Alva. So we have Alba with a B as in boy or Alva with B as in Victor. Comma Ferdinand Alvarez de Toledo, comma Dugov. So he was Dugov. I'm not really sure. Let's see. Ferdinand Alvarez de Toledo. Alba. So he was a duke, prime minister and general of the Spanish armies under Charles V and Philip II from 1508 to 1582, descendant of one of the most illustrious families of Spain. He was educated under the eye of his grandfather, who instructed him in the arts of war and of government. He fought while yet a youth at the Battle of Pavis and had the custody of Francis I while a prisoner. He commanded under Charles V in Hung Hungary, Hungary and was present at the Siege of Tunis and accompanied the expedition against Algiers 
He defended Perpignan against the Dauphin, distinguished himself in Navarro and Catalonia, and was in consequence created Duke of Alba. Okay, so Duke of Alba. Got it. His cautiousness and his taste for political intrigue afforded as yet no very high evidence of his military talents, and even Charles V, whom he counseled when in Hungary to build a bridge of gold for the Turks rather than hazard a decisive battle, seems to have entrusted him the command rather as a matter of personal favor than recognition of his abilities. His pride was hurt at the low estimation in which he was held, and his real genius began to show itself. The victory which Charles V gained at Mulberg over John Frederick, Elector of Saxony, in 1547 was due to the able generalship of the Duke of Alba. Under his influence as president of the Council of War, the captive Elector was condemned to death, and it was entirely against his wish that the Emperor commuted the sentence. He took part under the Emperor in the expedition against Henry II, King of France, who had taken possession of Metz. But here his exhortions, as well as those of the Emperor, proved unavailing. He was more fortunate in Italy against the combined armies of the Pope and the French King, which he repeatedly defeated during the campaign of 1555. After the abdication of the Emperor Charles V in 1556, he continued to hold the command of the army and overran the states of the church, which after the retreat of the French army in 1557 lay entirely at his mercy. He was obliged, however, by the command of Philip II to conclude a peace with Pope Paul IV and restore all his conquests. Being recalled from Italy, he appeared in 1559 at the court of France, with which Spain had become reconciled by the peace of Chateau Cambresis in 1559, April 3rd, and as proxy for his sovereign espoused Elizabeth, Henry II's daughter. When the inhabitants of the Netherlands, who had been accustomed to freedom, revolted against the tyranny of Spain, and especially against the hated Inquisition, the Duke of Alva's council was to suppress the insurrection forcibly and with rigor. The king accordingly committed the matter to his hands and sent him to the Netherlands in 1567 with unlimited power and a large military force. That's never a good thing. His first step on arriving was to establish what was called the Bloody Council, in which he himself at first presided and over which he afterwards appointed the Sanguinary Don Juan de Vargas. This tribunal condemned all without distinction whose opinions appeared dubious or whose wealth excited jealousy. Keep all of this in mind. The present and the absent, the living and the dead, were subjected alike to trial and their property confiscated by the council. A number of the merchants and mechanics immigrated to England, above 100,000 abandoned their native country, and many others enlisted under the banners of the proscribed princes, Louis and William of Orange. Ooh, I've got a, a whole book on William of Orange somewhere. Alba rendered still more savage by a defeat which befell his lieutenant, the Duke of Arenberg, put to death the Counts Egmont and Horn on the scaffold. He afterwards defeated Prince Louis and compelled William of Orange to retire to Germany, upon which he entered Brussels in the greatest triumph in 1568, December 22nd. The Pope presented to him with a consecrated hat and sword as defender of the Catholic faith, 
That honor which, having been hitherto conferred only on crowned heads, increased his insolence to the highest degree. He caused a statue to be cast in which he was represented as trampling underfoot two human figures, representing the nobles and people of the Netherlands, and this he set up in Antwerp. Wow. His executioners shed more blood than his soldiers, and none now withstood his arms except Holland and Zealand. But these provinces continually renewed their efforts against him and succeeded in destroying the fleet equipped by his orders. This disaster, perhaps still more the apprehension that he might lose the king's favor, induced him to request that he might be recalled. Philip gladly acceded as he perceived that the obstinacy of the rebels was only increased by these cruelties, and he was desirous of trying the effect of milder measures. All but according resi accordingly resigned the command of the troops to Don Louis de Requesens, and 1573, December 18, left the country, in which, as he himself boasted, he had executed 18,000 men. That is horrible. The war which he had kindled burned for 68 years and cost Spain $800 million, her finest troops, and the loss of seven of the richest provinces of the Netherlands. Alba was received at Madrid with the highest distinction, but did not long enjoy his former consideration. Don Frederick, one of his sons, having seduced one of the Queen's ladies of honor under promise of marriage and being arrested on this account, the father assisted him to escape and in opposition of the, to the desire of the king, united him in marriage to one of his relatives. He was in consequence banished from the court to the, his castle of Uzida, where he lived two years. But now the troubles of Portugal, the crown of which Philip claimed as his hereditary right, induced the king to draw Alba anew from his retreat. The duke accordingly led an army into Portugal and drove out Don Antonio, whose as grandson of John III had taken possession of the throne. The whole country was speedily conquered in 1581, and Alba, with his accustomed cruelty and rapacity, seized the treasures of the capital himself, while he allowed the soldiers to plunder without mercy the suburbs and surrounding country. Philip, dissatisfied with these proceedings, desired to have an investigation of the conduct of the duke, but the haughty bearing of the latter and the fear of a revolt induced him to abandon it. Alba died in Lisbon at the age of 74. He had a fine countenance with a haughty air and a robust frame. He slept little while he both labored and wrote much. It has been said of him that during 60 years of military service, he never lost a battle and never allowed himself to be surprised. He sounds like a very cruel person. Um, and that's all I'm going to say about that. All right, 40. So entry number 40. Albathata, Albatheta, Te, Albathete, okay, there we go, Albathete, town of Spain, capital of the province of the same name in Murcia, 138 miles southeast from Madrid, and a station on the railway from Madrid to Alicante. It stands in a fertile but treeless plain, is built with some regularity, and contains a number of squares and many good houses. It is a place of considerable trade and has great cattle fairs in September. It is noted in Spain for the manufacture of knives and other still goods, not, however, of superior quality. Population, 18,976. 
Albacete, the province, is formed partly from the former kingdom of Mercia, partly from New Castile, 5,966 square miles. It is generally hilly and in some parts mountainous, some of its mountains attaining a height of 5,000 feet, but it contains also rich plains and fertile valleys. Agriculture is more advanced than in most parts of Spain. Corn and wine are largely produced, as also oil, hemp, tobacco, saffron, fruits of various kinds, and honey. Great numbers of sheep, goats, oxen, horses, mules, and asses are reared. The mineral wealth of the province appears to be considerable, but is not turned to much account. Population in 1877 and 1887... Okay, it says population 1877. I think they forgot to put the numbers there. But in 1887, it was 229,492, and then in 1900, 237,877. Okay, and entry 41, Albanes, or, or, or Albanes, noun, plural, persons not born in a country, not natives, the right which a French king formerly possessed of seizing upon the property of foreigners on their death. And number 42, Alba Longa, one of the most ancient cities of Italy, on the rocky ridge that runs along the east shore of the Alban Lake, between the lake and the Alban Mount, Salbano. According to legendary history, it was built by Ascanius, the son of Aeneas, about 300 years, years before the foundation of Rome, which is represented as a colony of Albanes. Notwithstanding this, the Romans, under Tullus Hostilius, destroyed the city and removed the inhabitants to Rome. It seems certain that it was an important city long before the existence of Rome and the head of a confederation of Latin towns, and that when it was destroyed, many of its inhabitants settled at Rome, some traces of its walls and yet are yet to be seen. And before we move on to 43, entry number 43, I just have to say that there was a an interruption whenever I got to 300 years uh, because uh, you may have heard it. Uh, there was a knocking at my door. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the knocking again, the rapping and tapping and all that. And if you're wondering why I keep saying that, it's because of the Halloween bonus podcast. So if you haven't heard that yet and you still want to hear a scary story or semi-scary story, uh, go to theoaktreejourneys.com and select uh, bonuses and you can hear the bonus podcast or look for it in the wherever you listen to podcasts um it, it will say halloween bonus um it was an, i don't know if it was a knock and run or if it was an animal i'm gonna say it was an animal but i thought it was my grandfather it sounded like his knock um but he was nowhere near my house so what's so weird about it is is i live in the middle of nowhere. Now, let me explain. Where I used to live, I got all kinds of weird stuff happening. Um, people, I found a woman one day in the middle of the day rummaging through uh, my bicycle uh, and my roommate's bicycle <laughs> underneath the carport, um, which you had to go through cars to get to. And uh, I went out there to find out what was going on. And she's like, oh, I'm, I'm looking for the, the, the water hose. I need some water. I'm like, okay, I'll give you some water. 
Um, you know, there was no reason for her to be rummaging through our stuff for some water. So I gave her some water, but she never once knocked on the door. Um, and I've had people, uh, knock on the doors, um, you know, for, for reasons, uh, like Jehovah's Witnesses, they're really nice, uh, um, and, you know, just various people wanting to sell things, um, and neighbors, you know, knocking to give us tomatoes and stuff, and, and they all have ignored the sign, you know, work in progress, <laughs> because I work from home, and, uh, so they've all ignored the sign and just still knocked. Um, so this knock, you know, it, it was, um, it was really weird. It sounded exactly like my grandfather's knock, but when I went to the door, no one was there. Um, uh, so I don't know if, if you want to knock on my door, uh, you have to really, really want to come to my house where I live now. I mean, you, you really do. And where I lived before, it was really easy. Uh, I lived right off of a, a trail. You just come, come up and you know, what, knock on the door or whatever. Um, but yeah, if you want to knock on the door at my house that I live at now, you must really want to knock on my door. Um, because it is a hike. If you don't drive up here and no one drove, uh, my grandfather doesn't drive up, up here because, you know, he's just that close and he doesn't mind a walk. But you have to be really willing to hike up the hill. Um, oh, and I'm sorry, I got distracted because there's a beautiful, beautiful hawk. Oh, it's gorgeous right outside my window. Anyway, um, and that's another thing. I don't have curtains on my windows because it's just too beautiful. And I live in an area with no neighbors. So, or at least uh, my neighbors would have to hike up here to get to me. So yeah, it was just a really weird thing. So I'm thinking it was just an animal, just kind of maybe a bird or a bat or something because I did have, oh, it could have been a bat because I did have my light on and it's dark. Um, yeah, it could have been a bat, but anyway, it, it sounded like my grandfather's knock, whatever it was, whatever animal it was, whatever human it was, you got the same knock that my grandpa had. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, and if it was a knock and run, my hat is off to that person because you must have really wanted to knock on my door and prank me because that, that that's a hike. My hat's off to you if it was a person. But but if you if it was a person and you're listening to this right now, why don't you just stick around? I might offer you some water or coffee next time. Um, but yeah, so so anyway, let's go on to our forty third entry. Um, our 43rd entry is a person, Alban, Saint. And I'm going to read this uh, from both the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 and the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And, uh, let's start with uh, the 1909 and see what they have to say. And then we'll go to the 1956 and see if they say anything different or if it's the exact same. I have not... Um, read it yet, so this will be new to me too. And, uh, okay. So, Alban, Saint, or Saint Alban, the first martyr of Britain, born Verulam, 3rd century, after having long lived a heathen, was converted to Christianity, but put to death at the commencement of Diocletian's persecution of the Christians. His anniversary is June 22nd. The town of St. Albans, which bears his name, is believed to stand on the site 
of his birthplace or the scene of his martyrdom. So they just don't know. Okay, so let's take a look at the 1956. Alban Kama Saint, first British martyr, died about 304, a native of Hertfordshire. He was tortured and executed at Verulamium, now St. Albans, by command of the prefect. So we know a little bit more now. Oh. Asca Asclopediatus for sheltering a Christian cleric who had converted him. When tranquility was restored, a chapel was erected over his grave. In 793, Ofa, king of the Mercians, founded a large monastery upon the spot, and Pope Adrian IV, uh, from 1154 to 1159, directed that he should hold the first place among the abbots of England. His festival was celebrated by the Roman Catholic Church on June 22nd and by the Anglican Church on June 17th. So there we go. We got way more information in 1956. And maybe uh, whenever the writers were writing the 1909 version, maybe they just didn't have access to all of the information. But I feel like we got way more in the 1956. So I'm glad that we read both. And that will happen from time to time. My regular listeners, you know that. Um, sometimes the 1909 just doesn't have all the info. And sometimes the 1956 doesn't either. So speaking of the 1956, we are going to stay in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 for our 44th entry, which is Albanel. Say that 10 times fast. It does not have an O in it, but it's Olbanel, comma Charles, or Charles Olbanel. And he was a French Jesuit missionary and explorer, born... Auvergne, France, 1616, died Salt, I want to say Salt Street, maybe, uh, Marie, January 11th, 1696. He entered the Jesuit novitiate in 1633, arrived in Canada in 1649, and accompanied the first French expedition from Quebec to Hudson Bay from 1670 to 1671. He was probably the first white man to reach Hudson Bay by land. In 1674, he, he revisited the bay, was taken prisoner by the English, sent back to Europe, and on his release returned to mission work in Canada in 1676. It sounds like a pretty cool guy. I want to know more about him. Unfortunately, I did not see him in... I'm just double-checking here. No, he was not in the 1909. That's why we had to go to just the 1956, so... So we don't get two, two encyclopedias for him. At least not the ones I have. He, he may be in, there may be more information about him on Wikipedia or in another encyclopedia. Um, all right. So our 45th entry, and this is our entry before break, is Albani, a rich and celebrated family of Rome who came originally from Albania in the 16th century and settled first at Urbino. The great influence of the family dates from the accession 1700 of Giovanni Francisco A. O. Albani to the papal throne as Clement XI. It has since furnished a succession of cardinals. It was Cardinal Alessandro Albani from 1692 to 1779 who formed the famous collection of objects of art in the Villa Albani outside the Porta Celeria at Rome. 
It is still a rich collection, although part of it was carried off by the French. The pieces taken away were restored in 1815, but the then possessor, being unable to pay for their removal to Rome, sold them to the king of Bavaria. Okay, and with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. I just have to make a comment. Um, and you're probably wondering if you caught that, uh, that I was able to see a hawk out my window. Um, you're probably like, well, but she said it was dark and it could have been a bat. Well, that's because there was a time lapse um, because of everything that, that happened. I had to check on my grandfather to make sure he was okay because, like I said, it sounded like his knock. So, yes, I am recording this early, um, earlier than Sunday, so I can get it to you on time. <laughs> um, but, yes, it was dark when the knock first happened. And now it is light. So, that, you know, that, that's enough said for the time lapse. But, and my grandfather was okay, by the way. So, let's move on to our 46th entry. Um, and for our 46th entry, we go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And this is a woman, uh, Al Albani, comma, Madame, or Albane, Madame, or Madame, Madame Albani. Um, there's multiple pronunciation keys um, for all of these, so none, of, they're all spelled the same, A-L-B-A-N-I, but I'm looking at the pronunciation key, and there is none for her, but all of the pronunciation keys are different. <laughs> so I will just say Albane, Albany, or Madame Albany. Her real name was Emma Lajoinesse. She was a Canadian opera singer. Born Chambly, Quebec, Canada, November 1st, 1852. She died in Kensington, London, England, April 3rd, 1930. She was educated in a Montreal convent and became, at an early age, choir director of a church in Albany, New York, to which city her family had moved. She studied in Paris under Gilbert Bionist and under Francesco Lampardi in Milan. She made her debut at Messina, Italy, in 1870, in Vincenzo's Bellini's La Sana Bula and was greatly acclaimed. Two years later, she repeated this successful performance at Covent Garden. She gained great renown as the Canadian Night Nightingale and filled distinguished opera roles in England, the United States, Russia, Germany, Australia, South Africa, India, and Canada. She was made Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire in 1925 and was awarded the Order of Merit of Germany and Denmark and the Victoria Badge. She was also appointed court singer to the Emperor of Germany. Her autobiography, 40 Years of Song, appeared in London in 1911. Wow, so she sounds like a very interesting person. Um, and it kind of brings me back to my childhood days. My mother uh, didn't listen to a lot of music, but she really enjoyed opera. Uh, and so I liked opera because she liked opera. I couldn't tell you any songs or anything like that because I was just a kid and I only liked it because she did. Um, but now, after reading about her, I'm kind of like, hmm, maybe I should listen to, to opera again and see if I like it as an adult and just like it on my own, not because a parent liked it. So if you have any recommendations, if you like opera singers, or if you have an opera singer friend. I mean, do people even sing in operas anymore? <laughs> um, but if they do, you know, and if you've got a, an opera friend singer you would like me to listen to or any recommendations, 
uh, go to theoaktreejourneys.com and select contact um, or um, go or write to me at mandyoaks at protonmail.com and just let me know. You know, give me a recommendation if you want to or if you just want to say hi, that's fine too. Um, but yeah, do you enjoy opera? And uh, you think I should get into it? Well, I'll, I'm going to at least try. <laughs> um, I may not like it. I may have only liked it because my mother did. So we'll, we'll find out. But I never know. You, you know, one never knows until you find out. Now, our 48th entry, I'm going to do a little differently. Um, I am going to read from the 1909 version. Um, but I'm also going to read just one paragraph of the 1956 version. And our 48th entry as Albania. So Albania is our 48th entry. And it is the southwest dis district of European Turkey occupies the west of the Balkan Peninsula from the Bojana River to the Gulf of Arta. To the north, it is bounded since 1878 to 1880 by Montenegro, Dolcino, and Bo <laughs> Bosnia. On the south, it is separated since 1881 from Greece by the Arta River. Upper Albania was Ilaria, Lower Albania, Ancient Epirus. On the east boundary, forming the watershed of the peninsula, rises the range of the Boradog Dog in Turkish means mountain and the Pindus. The first detaches itself from the wild masses of the Dog and Argentero Mountains, and west of it lie parallel chains enclosing on the one side long elevated valleys and sinking on the other in terraces down to level stripes or strips along the coast consisting mostly of the unhealthy swamps and lagoons. Pindus to the south is also flanked by isolated basins or hollows whose western edges pass into the jagged and thick-wooded Iparotic highlands. These highlands advance to the sea, forming steep rocky coasts. One promontory, the Acroceranian, projecting in Cape Lanjuta far into the sea, reaches a height of 4,000 to 5,000 feet. The chief rivers are the Bojana, the Dren, the Skombi, Urgent, Bojusa, Glycus or Acheron, which follows for some distance a subterranean channel and reappearing is called Moropotamus. The Arta and the upper course of the Aspropotamus among the lakes Bajana, Acre, and Janina are most important. A fine climate, the heat of which is tempered by high mountains and the proximity of the sea and a favorable soil seem to invite the inhabitants to agriculture, but for the most part in vain. In the north, little or nothing is cultivated maize. In the moist valleys, a little rice and barley are produced, but the mountain terraces are used as pastures for numerous herds of cattle and sheep. In Epirus, there is more variety. Here the slopes of the lower valleys mixed with patches of vines and maize, while the densely wooded mountain ridges furnish valuable timber. The plateau of Janina yields abundance of grain, and in the valleys opening to the south, the finer fruits are produced, with maize, rice, and wheat. Even cotton and indigo might be profitably cultivated in the moist valleys, but in its present wretched condition, the country barely supports its scanty population. The inhabitants, estimated about one million, are a peculiar people, the Albanians or Arnots. They call themselves Skyptars. They are descendants of the ancient Illyrians, mixed with Greeks and slaves, and not to be confounded with the Albani that live on the Caspian Sea. The Albanians are half-civilized mountaineers, frank to a friend, vindictive to an enemy. 
They are constantly under arms and are more devoted to robbery and piracy than to cattle feeding and agriculture. They live in perpetual anarchy, every village at war with its neighbor and even the several quarters of the same town carrying on mutual hostilities. Many of them serve as mercenaries in other countries, and they form the best soldiers of the Turkish army. At one time, the Albanians were called, were called all called Christians. After the death of their last chief, the hero Skanderbeg, in their subjugation by the Turks, a large part became Bohemians, who distinguished themselves by cruelty and treachery towards the tribes that remained true to their old faith. There are three main divisions of the Albanians, the Gegged, Gegides in Upper Albania, the purest representatives of the ancient Illyrian stock, the Toskides in Central and Lower Albania, and the Iperots, largely mixed with Greeks in the south. To the latter section along the Siliots, the Murdites, who are Roman Catholics, are the noblest of the northern tribes. The Albanian or Skyptar language, a distinct and peculiar tongue, belongs to the Indo-European group and is derived from the ancient Illyrian, mixed with Greek, Turkish, and other intrusive elements. There are two main dialects, northern and southern. Al Albania was officially divided by the Turks in the, into the vilayets of Scuteri and Janini. The Berlin Congress of 1878 granted a considerable addition of territory to Montenegro, including Podgorica and Antaveri. The secession, as also that of Dolcenio, Dulcino, demanded from the Porte by the Western powers in 1880, was opposed by the Albanians, who formed a national league to prevent it. A conference of plenipotentiaries Berlin 1880 insisted that the Porte should carry out the recommendation of the Berlin Congress and cede to Greece the portion of Albania south of the Kalamos River. Turkey, however, agreed in 1881 to cede only the portion east of the river Arta and the town of Arta. The portion east of the river Arta with the town... Oh, oh, they've got it repeated. Okay. So they repeated part of the sen sentence, so it repeats. The portion east of the river Arta with the town of Arta. New Balkan troubles developed early in 1903. The Russian consul at Mitrovica, Macedonia, was killed by an Albanian sentry, and his successor was wounded in April by alleged Albanians. Under pressure by the great powers... The Sultan again promised to institute reforms in the Balkan province and revolts in various parts were, first, were the first results. Okay, so that's from 1909. So let's look at just this paragraph of history um, from the 1956 Encyclopedia Americana. In 640 AD, so this is the Middle Ages. Um, actually, I'm going to go up to the first paragraph that, for history. The Albanians are among the oldest peoples in Europe. Their country formed part of the Roman provinces of Illyricum and Epirus. After the dismemberment of the Roman Empire, it became part of the Byzantine Empire. So Middle Ages, in 640 AD, northern Albania was invaded by the Serbians, with whom the Albanians later adopted in 1288 the Christian faith, and in the 9th century, southern Albania was conquered by the Bulgarians. The Normans, Venetians, and Byzantines disputed the territory with them, but until the 14th century, the Albanians remained most of the time nominally under Serbian rule, never, however, losing their nationality. In 1360, shortly after the death of the Serbian emperor Stephen Dushan, Stephen Nemenia IX, we've got a 1308 question mark to 1355, 
They were ruled by the Montenegrin prince family of Balsha by native chiefs until 1431 when the Turks captured Yanini, Yanina, now Ionina. Okay. So, and you could, um, if you're interested in Albania, which it, um, in the 1956 version, it goes on. Um, it looks like a very rich history. Um, there is a lot to Albania, but I did read from the 1909, and I just wanted to give you that brief history from 1956. Okay, and let's move on to entry 49. So we are going to end... With the 1909, the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary. And our 49th entry is Albino. It's Albino, is a and that is a town of Italy about 18 miles from Rome on the declivity of the lava walls which encompass the Lake Albino and opposite the site of Alba Longa. It is the seat of a bishop and is surrounded by the mansions of wealthy Romans. A valuable wine is made here. It doesn't say what kind of wine, just a valuable wine. Population, 6,200. The Alban Lake, or Lago de Castello, is in the basin of, the ex of an extinct volcano and has a circumference of 6 miles with the enormous depth of more than 1,000 feet. Its elevation is nearly 1,000 feet above the sea. While the Romans were at war with the Mancians in 390 BC, this lake rose to an extraordinary height in the heat of summer and without any apparent cause. Etruscan diviners declared that the conquest of Eid depended upon letting off the waters of the lake. Stimulated by this, the Romans, under the direction of the Etruscans, opened an emissary or tunnel through the lava wall which bounds it. In the execution of this work, they acquired the art of mining, which they now applied to undermine the walls of Eid. The tunnel, which still remains and still fulfills its ancient office, is one and a half miles in length, with a height of seven feet and the width of four feet. On the east bank of the lake rises Monte Cavo, the ancient Mount Albanus, 3,000 feet high, affording an extensive and magnificent view from its summit. Upon it once stood the splendid temple of Jupiter Plutalius. Okay. And our 50th and final entry is Almonds, Albans, oh, I said Almonds, <laughs> sorry about that, Albans, Street. I want to say street, because it says ST. It could be St. Albans. might be St. Albans. So St. Albans, ancient borough in Hertfordshire, situated on the top and northern side of a picturesque hill, 21 miles northwest from London. The Ver, a small tributary of the Colne, separates it from the site of the ancient Verulam, an important station in the time of the Romans and the scene of a terrible slaughter and the insurrection under Bodacia. In honor of St. Alban, said to have suffered martyrdom here in 297, so there we go, yes, yeah, St. A Benedictine monastery was founded by Ofa, King of Mercia, 796. The foundation of the town is supposed to be due to Olsig, or Olsen, abbot about 150 years later. Two battles were fought near St. Alban, Alban's, uh, during the Wars of the Roses, if you remember that from school, 1455 and 1461, and the first... Henry VI became a captive. In the other, he was set at liberty by his brave queen, Margaret of Anjou. The old abbey church, restored in 1875 by Sir Gilbert Scott, is a cruciform building of irregular architecture, 547 feet in length, 206 in breadth, 
with an embattled tower 146 feet high. The abbot of St. Albans had a seat in the House of Peers and had precedence of all other English abbots. In St. Michael's Church is a monument to the memory of the great Bacon, who bore the titles Baron Verulam and Viscount St. Albans. More recently, the Beauclerk family have taken from this place the title of Duke, and the Grimston family that of Earl. The borough was disfranchised in 1852 for bribery. Uh, population, uh, <laughs> what's funny here is it says population, and then it sh where it should be the dates uh, that it's going to tell us the population, completely blank. Uh, there's a parentheses, several spaces, and then another parentheses, um, no date, but the population in whatever date that was supposed to be, <laughs> 12,895, many of whom are employed in straw, straw plating. St. Albans has recently been made the center of a new diocese of the Church of England, its first bishop having been enthroned 1877 in June. So with that, that is our 50th entry. Thank you so much for sticking with me. Um, and had I recorded everything that happened last night, uh, this would have been a very, very long podcast. But uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you uh, to my listeners in Australia, to my listeners in the U.S., to the Wana Tribe. Thank you, Emily, and and uh, for letting me know that you listen. Um, and I hope everyone thanked a veteran uh, on Veterans Day. If you didn't thank a veteran on Veterans Day, uh, you know, thank them now. You know, my brother, who's a veteran, told me that that a lot of people forget that they they served not just one day a year. So, you know, th thank you. And and if I forgot to say thank you to any veterans, I want to thank you now. Um, and let's not forget the quote of the month. Um, Best of all is it to preserve everything in a pure, still heart, and let there be for every pulse a thanksgiving, and for every breath a song by Gesner. So thank you all so much. I do appreciate you. And don't forget, um, it is Thanksgiving this month for uh, those who are listening in the U.S. And uh, let me know what you're thankful for. Uh, I would love to hear, do you have any Thanksgiving traditions? Uh, if you're not in the U.S., um, do you celebrate Thanksgiving? I've heard that other people do celebrate Thanksgiving, um, just on different days maybe. And uh, just let me know. Uh, do you, And uh, let me know what your traditions are. Write to me at mandyoaks at protonmail.com or go to the Oak Tree Journeys dot com and go to contact and uh, just send me a line what are your thanksgiving traditions what are you most thankful for and if you have a prayer request um i'll be happy to pray for you and i want to thank you for praying for our preacher and the loss of his wife and and uh and just pray prayers for his family uh, she was a really good person and and he's a good guy too i really really enjoy his sermons and i enjoy talking to him too on a regular basis so uh, so please keep them in your prayers. And just thank you, everyone, um, for sticking with me today. And I want to bid you a blessed week. And I want to bid you also, oh, and to my NaNoWriMo's out there. This is your third week. You got this. Uh, you can do this. Chug along. Um, and we're doing it together. And if you want to look me up on NaNoWriMo, if you are doing NaNoWriMo, um, I'll have my name. It is a little complicated. Uh, in the description below in the in this podcast. So thank you all so much and good luck to NaNoWriMo's out there. And uh, I want to bid you adieu.